0: Welcome to the CRE podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the commercial real estate podcast powered by First National. I am Adam Powatic, one of your hosts today, along with Aaron Cameron. Our guest is Alam Perani, who's the Executive Managing Director at Collier's International Hotels. And if you're thinking to yourself, I've never heard you guys talk about hotels before, you're completely right. This is a new asset class to the podcast. We're, we're interested to have Alam on, talk about the hotel industry, not just in the COVID context, which we are in the midst of right now, but you know a pretty good history of that as an investment asset class and how it got to you know where it was right before everything kind of went sideways. And then, uh, of course, the impacts that we're feeling through COVID. So welcome to the podcast, Alam. Thank you very much, Adam and Ern. Appreciate the invite. Yeah, of course. The, uh, to get these going, we always want to hear about how you got to where you are today. So we'd love to hear your personal story about your rise through the ranks at investment brokerage and what you learned along the way about hotels. Thank you. Yeah. So <laughs> there's Adam wishing the topic was apartments. <laughs> I know more about that. Yes, I do know much more about apartments. Yeah, Aaron and I are pretty ignorant about hotels, for the record, and that will come out in this conversation. Yeah, no,
1: and let's apologize for in advance for our listeners that may have a much larger understanding of the hospitality world. If I ask stupid questions, I'm sorry. Okay, I, I don't. I, I don't. Everyone lives in hotels. Everyone uses hotels, and I'm hoping everyone goes back to living in hotels. So we're staying in hotels. So uh, no problem. Yeah. So, yeah. Alan, tell us how did you end up where you are today. Well, you know, I
2: actually been at Colliers in June. On June fourteenth, it'll be twenty nine years that I'll have been at Colliers, and wow. that's my exposure to the real estate business. I actually went to hotel school. It's actually a career path that certain people <laughs> choose. I uh, worked in in operations in hotels, and when I was when I graduated, I actually was fortunate to work for Laventhal and Horvath, which was at that time in the in the late eighties one of the preeminent. uh, Consulting firms, and we used to do development consulting and advisory work for owners and brands. So, you know, my exposure to real estate came after that. I spent three years, two and a half, three years with Lavinthal and Orvath, and then joined Colliers. And frankly, it was one of the things, it wasn't a career path that people chose in terms of, you know, selling hotels and, you know, brokering transactions of hotels. But, you know, here we are 29 years later, and it's been a good run.
1: But what was what was your why? Like why did you end up with the hospitality in the first place? Like where was the attraction? I guess like you, you said, you ended up you know in the eighties back. You know, a focus on this asset class. What was the attraction at the time, and what kept you, know, you with it? You know, why not jump around? Why stick with it all this time?
2: Well, you know, so to answer your first question about hotels, uh, the reason I was attracted to hotels was like, I always liked the business, you know, I always knew I was going to get into business, the business side of career. And then, you know, I think with hotels growing up back in Africa and East Africa, staying at hotels and going on vacation with your family it was always a you look at the people that work at hotels and the general managers and they're you know kings of the castle right and it was always something that attracted me and my family also had some involvement on the hospitality side so that was part of the the attraction and uh, i realized that the operation side wasn't something that i liked i did it i went through it and it was good learning But I always liked the finance development and the real estate side of it. So that's kind of how I, and frankly, you know, joining Collier's in 1991 was, it wasn't a planned path. It just kind of happened. And I thoroughly enjoy the business. And it's it's the only asset class that I play in and participate in. And, you know, we've got a great team at Collier's. And I should talk about that because, you know, our strength is really our team like I've been there 29 years I look at the team that I have with eight of us across the Canadian platform I've got colleagues in our Vancouver office Calgary Montreal and of course Toronto which is our hub and you know the group of us have been together for a long time and then more recently set up uh, an operation in Nassau to look after the Caribbean
0: as many of your listeners do know, I started out my career at Collier's and it was West GTA Industrial, which is the biggest industrial market in the country. And so it was me and dozens and dozens of other people all chasing the same product. But you're Alum, you're the only hotel person I know at Collier's. Is it nice not to have a bunch of competition sitting shoulder to shoulder with you in the office?
2: Well, I'll tell you the great thing about Collier's and part of the reason, you know, one of the reasons and most significant reason that I met Collier's and I've been there 29 years is you've got management that are super supportive and you've got also colleagues and brokers that, that actually respect that hotels are a very, very unique asset class. It's not like, you know, any other asset class. Yet. I think the closest you have is probably retirement homes and apartment buildings. But you think about our tenants, every day our tenants go up and down the elevator. Right? And so it's an operating business more than it is real estate. I think the real estate aspect is obviously significant because of the, the locations and the business and the buildings itself. but it is really first and foremost an operating business. And I think out of that comes the um, unique circumstances. and you know I think the other brokers you know as much as people would like to dabble in this business, it is a very unique business. And underwriting and understanding the nuances, I think is, uh, it's unlike any other business, any other asset class.
1: I'm um, you know, playing on Adam and my ignorance, which is real on this asset class. And I'm going to just, I'm going to blanket that our listeners are likely as ignorant. Can we do a quick sort of three minute, five minute 101 on hospitality? And I'm wondering if you can even maybe to give you some structure, do it from tiers. So like that motel on the side of the highway. That's, you know, always has no vacancy in it for some reason, all the way up to, you know, the Delta or the Four Seasons in a downtown urban center and the different varieties all the way through it. If you could just kind of quickly kind of categorize the different types of hospitality, I think there's subsets to it, right? So maybe if you could just give us just your, if you, let's say you have someone show up at your desk and call yours and say, I need to learn about hospitality in 10 minutes. Or five minutes. What would you tell them?
2: Yeah, so uh, there's definitely a the different, you know, asset class within that hospitality. So you have got the, you know, the, the motels, and also more the limited, you know, what we call limited service hotels. So limited service hotels are essentially the Holiday Expresses, the Hampton Inns, the Fairfields. Those are assets, and you know, the Comfort Inns, which has got great distribution across the country. And if you look at those, are typically as the term limited service goes, it's you know, essentially rooms only. You get your breakfast, and, which is typically your buffet breakfast in the morning, and then there's no amenities, other amenities in terms of, you know, restaurant space or, and very limited meeting space. The other part is that some have swimming pools. Oftentimes, you don't have that amenity as well. In this day and age, you know, most of these limited service properties have got fitness facilities, but beyond that, you're not going to get anything extensive. So that's the limited service sector. And then I think the other, after that, you've got what we call focus service or select service. And that's, you know, hotel brands like Courtyard by Marriott. You've got Hilton Garden Inn and, you know, Hyatt Place, which is another up and coming brand. And so those are typically, again, pretty close to limited service, but you've got A certain element of food and beverage offerings and then uh, you've got the extended stay product and those are typically driven and built around targeting you know three to five day stays so that's for the road warrior that's out there you know living in, in a hotel for as i said three to five days sometimes even longer they even offer weekly rates and monthly rates and that offering typically has larger guest rooms They have kitchenettes, they've got, you know, sometimes you have a a one bedroom studio, sometimes, you know, it could be even two bedrooms. And those not only target the traveler, but you've also got families that travel and stay at extended stay hotels. And then I think the next tier is really the full service hotels. And then within full service hotels, you've got uh, not only the mid-market hotels, but you've got luxury and first class hotels. And those most have, you know, extensive facilities, spa facilities and food and beverage offering. And then uh, you also have meeting facilities. So that's, you know, broadly, those are the different categories of hotels.
0: What's your favorite hotel in Canada? Oh boy,
2: this could be uh,
1: career limiting. (laughs) He can't can't answer that question.
0: It's okay. It's the pack Rim. I know it is.
1: Yeah.
0: It's everybody's favorite.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Can you describe the relationship between ownership and banner? Like I hear, again, I'm super ignorant and I apologize, but I hear about, you know, who's the banner on that particular hotel. Are there I guess, hotel companies that own and operate, you know, are there ones that kind of lend out their name? And then maybe if you could tier those for us to understand, like I, there's the motel sixes or motel eights all the way up to the four seasons or what have you. How do you categorize that? How does that relationship work between real estate, the landowners and the hotel operators?
2: That's a great question, Aaron. You know, the perception is that, you know, Marriott's and the Hilton's and the Hyatt's of the world and Intercontinental Hotel's also another significant brand. You know, the perception is that they own those hotels and that's far from reality. So these hotel companies are essentially in the business of franchising and managing hotels. And they've become asset light. And that's happened over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Historically, if you looked at Hilton hotels in Canada, that's, you know, it's one good example to look at. Their hotels were owned by Hilton International and the parent company at the time was Ladbroke out of the UK. So what has happened over time is that these companies disposed off their real estate, but secured Longer term contracts on either in the form of management agreements or franchise agreements. So, today, if you look at all these larger brands that I mentioned, I don't think there's any one of those that I mentioned that actually owns a hotel in Canada. It's so they've either got long term management agreements or franchise agreements. So, then you go back and look at the profile of owners who are the owners, and you know, it's interesting, it's a fairly diverse segment. You've got what we call hotel investment companies, these are companies that are purely focused on the hotel business and kind of we categorize them as those you know and for the most part are private and they own more than five hotels and then you got private investors sometimes that just have own one or two hotels and they in the canadian context there are very few institutional owners and that's the difference between canada and the u.s where i think in the u.s you've got a lot more institutional owners you know insurance companies private equity firms but in canada if you look at the ownership profile it's primarily categorized between hotel investment companies, the private investors, you know, and that private investor could be a high net worth family and then, the, you know, institutional investors
0: as well. I just had this assumption, and you know, maybe I'm wrong, that you know, as you move up the hierarchy that you just described for us, you probably attract increasingly more interest when you're bringing your property to market. But can you comment on the different, you know, interest levels you find for the different classes of hotels when you're doing a, a, you know, a full offering available to the public?
2: Yeah. So, you know, again, just, you know, similar to other asset classes, if you're selling something in an urban market, you know, major markets, you know, five, six major markets across Canada, downtown hotels, obviously will attract the most amount of interest from a more diverse group of buyers. I think that the entry point or the ability to get into a market like Toronto and Vancouver over time has become so difficult that you started to see some development in that area. But for the most part, primary focus is urban markets in these major markets. Now, having said that, the asset class, the the segment that I talked about earlier, which is the focus service, select service, in my opinion, is one of the most profitable. And I think you only have to look at the private equity firms in the U.S. that have actually accumulated a significant amount of that product. So the Black Suns of the world and the Starwood Capital, if you look at the amount of product they own in that segment it's phenomenal because that is frankly the most profitable. So that, those are the, you know, hotels that provide limited service, but have a, you know, small food and beverage offering. And those are the, the hotels that are, you know, sometimes in urban markets, in many urban markets, but oftentimes in airport and other suburban markets. And those are the ones with, you know, with that they say in, in our business, they say 80% of your profit comes from the rooms business. And that's what they focus on.
0: And so I guess as a follow-up to that, can you kind of tell us what cap rates would have been Obviously, right now, you know, just for a timestamp, it's April twenty fourth, we're right in the throes of you know the COVID pandemic. But if you can kind of describe where cap rates were prior to everything going sideways, just to give a context about the yield expectations from investors.
1: And let me pile on to the question, Alan, so that you can kind of add to it, not just on cap rates, but where I'm thinking is what are the other metrics that you would look at, right? You've been mm-hmm. in this industry for so long. If someone said, hey, I want to buy a hotel, here are the five that I'm thinking about buying or developing or whatever. What are the, I mean, for lenders, we quickly go to the LTV, the DSCR and the cap rate. Right? Yeah. Like it's really easy. I can eyeball all day long and make quick assessments. What are the metrics that you look at? on top of cap
2: rates. Yeah. And that's great that you pointed that out. And so Adam, to answer your question in terms of cap rates, again, I will preface this by saying that one of my earlier points is that, you know, your tenant is walking out of your building every single day to the extent that, you know, they're not there for two days, two or three days. But so, you know, the volatility in our cash flow in the hotels is really dependent on what's happening in the economy, what events are taking place in that specific market. So the... Cap rates, I always say when talking to people in the, you know, investors or lenders or whoever the, the stakeholder is, I always say cap rates are not the only benchmark that you've got to use. But if you were to look at, in broad terms, cap rates for major markets in major urban markets, I'd say, you know, a Toronto or a Vancouver could be in that 4 to 6% range. And I know that's a wide range. It really is de- dependent on whether it's stabilized or not, right? So that's the one extreme. And then you, if you, you look at your focus service product, that focus service, depending again on where the market is or where the hotel is located, could be a range of, you know, seven to nine percent, right? So major markets would be closer to seven secondary tertiary markets it would be closer to nine. And then limited service product, I think you just have to add 100, 200 basis points onto that, onto the focused service. So that's your broad range of cap rates. And then Aaron, to answer your question in terms of valuation metrics, you not only have to look at cap rates, but I think your price per room and measure that relative to what replacement cost is, is another benchmark. And then the other thing that we use, and I think it's unique to hotels and maybe other asset classes look at this, is a revenue multiplier. And typically, it's based on just rooms. So your room business, and I said earlier, that's where a significant portion of your profit comes from. So a, revenue, a room revenue multiplier is another benchmark. And that can, you know, depending on, again, location, it could be anywhere from a three times room revenue multiplier to a six, right? Again, major market versus secondary tertiary
0: market. Right, Alan, I want to ask you about you know, the investment history of hotels, you know, specifically for anybody that, you know, might not be following hotels too closely, you might have just seen in the news that they've been we having you know great investment years the last couple leading up to our current situation. So It would be great to hear you know the arc of hotel investment you know before it got really hot in the last couple of years, what it was like brokering deals through the peak of it the last little bit, and then uh, I guess what, we do have to cover you know where we are now in COVID nineteen. And so it'd be great to to get you know a short history of hotels investment, courtesy of uh, Alan Perani.
2: Yeah. So, you know, if you look back at the last decade, it's probably, it's close to $20 billion of transaction activity in hotels. And we kind of, at Collier's, we track anything over a million dollars. And so that number is, you know, we, we're confident it's fairly accurate. So if you look at that and relative to, and so I said, that's the last decade ending 2019. And if you look at the prior decade, that number was probably closer to 13 billion. So that's a, it's a pretty significant, it's a 50% growth. Right, right? And part of that is, I think, because the industry was finally accepted as a legitimate asset class to hotels. And that is a result of, I think, a couple of factors. One, I think you've got institutional capital that has participated in the space, which I think has brought some attention to the asset class. I think the emergence of new lenders, both domestic and international lenders, has certainly helped liquidity. Because as you guys know, as real estate guys, if there's no debt, you're not going to have a lot of transaction activity. And then I think the other third trend is really the international capital that has participated in the space. And that I think those are kind of the three factors that have legitimized this asset class. And so you know, if you look at 2019, we ended at 1.75 billion dollars of transaction volume, which, you know, pretty healthy for this asset class.
1: Um do you think that institutional capital that's being attracted to that hospitality sector is that just because of like a risk adjusted return that they were able to kind of wrap their heads around? Like, what do you justify? How do you explain that? Absolutely. So that's, that's exactly
2: it. So if you look at the premiums on returns for the hospitality asset class relative to others, you know, if you're, and you guys are the experts on the apartment side, you know, if you're at three, three and a half, four 4% cap rates, you know, hotels in uh, for the most part will be, you know, probably 150, 200 basis points above that. So it's that risk-adjusted return that someone's looking at. And I, thought, I also think it's balancing portfolios for the institutional capital. And, you know, part of the challenge in the Canadian context is just the size of our industry hasn't been, you know, so when you think about the availability of product and institutionally quality assets, you know, it isn't often that that type of product comes to market. And that's the reason why you don't have more institutional money in this sector. And, you know, I talked earlier about private equity firms, that have participated, and I always use the U.S. example. They're a significant player in the U.S. In Canada, it's just, it
1: isn't there because of the,
2: the lack of product.
1: You know, I've been pleading my ignorance, and it's true. However, I can, I can offer one comment that I think is of value, Alam. You know, with my, with our, with Adam and my, you know, engagement in the financing world, I can tell you that spreads on the hospitality world have certainly come down, you know historically, I would say three, four, five years ago, maybe if you're financing a really strong, you know, industrial office commercial asset, it might be a spread of, let's call it 200 to make things up. And the hospitality spread would be 350. So it'd be 150 basis points spread between the best asset class in commercial real estate versus the best hospitality asset class. And I can tell you before COVID, that spread was down to like 20 or 30 basis points. So even on a lending community, we were starting to come into a more... Understanding and acceptance of the hospitality asset class. Again, I I have no idea how it's going to work out with COVID, but certainly that would lead, again, just to add on to your previous comments about the institutional capital coming in. Clearly, if that institutional capital is leading, the lenders were following and, and, and also giving value to that hospitality investment. I got two questions. I'm going to pose them both to you, Alan, and I'll let you kind of run with either one or both. One before,
2: is... Aaron, if I may just interject before yeah, you do Yeah, Go ahead, please, One please, comment please, I did yeah. want to make, because you made a very good point about the spreads. And, you know, as much as liquidity in this asset class has been brought on by, you know, the institutional capital, I think there is a significant segment of what I call private investors and hotel investment companies. So hotel investment companies are folks that focus purely on owning, managing, And operating hotels. And it's amazing how the lending community has come back and actually supported this asset class because, you know, as much as they underwrite the property, they're underwriting the sponsor. And, you know, so you've got some very sophisticated players that are in this business. And, you know, they've actually over time, you know, amassed a very significant portfolio. And they tend to be relatively conservative because, you know, of the cyclical nature of our business. So, you know, it's not just the institutional capital, but you've got that private investor and hotel investment company that has actually been a significant player in this space.
1: And the support of the lending community as well, quite frankly. I think following their clients and understanding that there is Again, back to that sort of risk adjusted return mm-hmm. value, right? Yeah, and thanks for the, those comments, Alan. Okay, so here, two questions. They're not connected, but I'm going to pose them both so that I can shut up and you can run with them. One is CapEx requirements, the life cycle of needing to overturn the common areas to keep the hotel fresh and attractive and that experiential concept. And then the second comment is just, you know, the airbnb of short-term stay and just how that's impacted hospitality. Two totally different questions, but why don't you just run with both of them?
2: Certainly. So, you know, a very good question about the capital requirements. And, you know, that's one thing that differentiates our business from other asset classes. You know, our business is not only capital intensive, but it's also a human resource, you know, significant amount of human resource that's required. But on the capital side, typically lenders and brands will insist on having a reserve for replacement. And that reserve for replacement typically is between three to 5% of your gross revenues. And that's capital that is required for future renovations. And to your point, you know, as you go through a four to five-year period and you're running relatively good occupancies, there's a lot of wear and tear on your asset, on your building. So essentially, that's capital that's required for future renovations. Now, you know, there's a lot of folks that if you look, if you talk to the owners, they say that's significantly more than that three to five percent. But that's money that you, you know, typically need to put back into your assets. So the rule of thumb and it doesn't, you know, again, it's just a rule of thumb. And I think it varies depending on what your level of occupancy is and the requirements that your brand has. But Typically for soft goods. So soft goods would be your carpeting and your bedspreads and you know your drapes and stuff. The life cycle for that is, you know, four to five years. And then your hard goods and case goods, which are your, your furniture, typically is, you know, seven to 10 years. So that's the type of capital that you'd have to go invest in during that period. And then there's obviously the, you know, more significant capital that uh, infrastructure capital that needs to go in. And that's something that, you know, you can't plan for. So it is a very capital intensive business.
0: Now I understand why the Pacific Rim is $600 a night. It's <laughs> <That's laughs> want that fresh just- room in a few years. <laughs> I do. I do want that. So (laughs) it's going to pay for it. And just for anybody who doesn't, you know, follow any underwriting of anything under the housing umbrella, you know, apartments might be a half a percentage point to a point of structural reserve. And, you know, that might not even be uh, truly applied in all cases. So that is an astronomically high figure. And you want to get to the Airbnb
1: at, question? Yeah. yeah, and then I'll just let's just talk about, I mean, I don't. I hate to just say it's Airbnb because there's multiple different services offering competition to the hospitality industry. But maybe just talk about how that's impacted and you know what the hospitality industry has done to fight it.
2: Yeah, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's home sharing is a more generic. Thank you. Yeah, whatever the... I'm, sorry. I think, I'm
1: ignorant yeah. to the term. Yeah, no, 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 that's, yeah, yeah, that's... I think true. it's
2: home sharing. So, you know, it's the Airbnb and the Saunders of the world. I mean... So, you know, interesting that they've had a major impact on our business. And through what we're going through now, I think there's going to be some some changes that are happening. So, we, you know, particularly with home sharing, I think it's every municipality has got a different or they govern the the home sharing laws. So part of the challenge for hotels that are competing with the Airbnbs or the Saunders of the world is that, you know, you've got insurance standards, you've got property taxes that are levied at a different level because a lot of these uh, residential units that are being rented out. So your tax basis is going to be residential versus commercial. So there, all those factors, I think, have been a real disadvantage to hotel owners. I think what's, what we're going through now with COVID and what will come out of this, and you know, I don't know if you guys have seen some of the recapitalization of Airbnb and what's happening with them, I think there's going to be some transformation. So I think that that industry is also going to go through a change. And then Aaron, I think you were also asking about the OTAs, which is the online travel agencies. You know, you think about the survival of those and with zero revenue, if no one's booking hotels, no one's booking airline travel, no one's, you know, doing any of that, I think that there's going to be some transformation. So that remains to be seen. What happens?
0: So we definitely talked about, you know, the better parts of the history of hotel investment, but we would be remiss if we didn't discuss the current state of affairs with COVID nineteen. You know, on this very podcast, we talked about how the various asset classes have been impacted and you know, universally hotels has been listed as the number one. So it'd be great to hear your opinion, Alan, on that, you know, as a guy on the front lines of this asset class, what you're seeing, how people are adapting and what the plan is to come out the other side.
2: Well, you know, the hospitality business has obviously been significantly impacted as uh, the you know, hotels have shut down and uh, the Hotel Association of Canada has estimated that close to 50% of the hotels across the country have been shut down. Occupancies as of uh, last week in Canada were down to 12-13% across hotels, and that does not even factor in the hotels that have been shut down. So
1: And what, it, what's normal, Alan? So All the 13 percent
2: Yeah, so let me give you a couple of stats. So for the first quarter of twenty twenty, occupancy was down to thirty-one and a half percent. So that's a normal January and February. And so March was obviously impacted more significantly, the latter part of March. And that compared to 2019 was at sixty percent. So you're down forty two percent. And then and then if you look at April, and stats typically come out, I think, every Friday, but we have numbers based on April eighteenth. So just for that period in twenty twenty. April it was at twelve point eight percent occupancy, same numbers last year fifty seven point six percent. So that's a seventy eight percent decline. So you know our business is all about heads in bed and beds, uh, and you need volume to make money, and and that's frankly why you got close to fifty percent of the hotels that have been shut down. You know, sad part about that is that uh, you also you know it's estimated that close to two hundred fifty thousand employees have either been furloughed or laid off and you know that's uh it's that's the sad part about this the good thing is that you know i think the government has stepped in and has provided some measures to help owners and employees that have been terminated so you know that uh, the hotel association of canada with working with the government i think has really helped manage through this process
0: when's the last time you saw occupancy levels like this yeah this is you know this event i mean you know
2: everyone was kind of over the last two, three years, and I think, you know, generally in real estate, everyone is talking about a slowdown. But, you know, I think there has never been an event that you can compare that has been anything like this. So if you think about the last couple of events we had, we had the financial crisis in 2008, and we had SARS in 2003, obviously nine eleven, nothing like this. This is, you know, we, we've never seen hotels shut down. You know, when you say 50% of the hotels across Canada are shut down, I mean, that's never in... Ever, I think it's never, ever happened. So, you know, I think that this is a—it's going to be verdicts out on when this thing turns around. But, you know, the way we're looking at it is that there's a couple of scenarios that we're thinking. So, you know, does the market come back before, call it July? Because I think consensus now is that, you know, we're going to be shut down until at least June. And what does that look like? So that's one scenario and I think that what will end up happening is if, if we're lucky enough and you know, I'm not super optimistic about that, but if that happens, then you'll have some business come back and I think it'll primarily be in the third and fourth quarter. If this goes beyond the summer and as you guys know and as everyone knows that summertime is the most profitable period for, for a lot of hotels across the country, both with tourism and conventions and, and group meetings. And if this thing goes beyond the summer, then I think it's, you know, that's another scenario. And I think that the third and fourth quarters aren't going to be that strong. And then if it goes, you know, the worst case scenario goes into the, you know, past the summer and into the third and fourth quarters, for all intents and purposes, then 2020 is, you know, are write-off. And then it's a function of, you know, how quickly we're going to see a recovery. A lot of folks have been talking about what happened with SARS and how fast was the recovery. I think that this is obviously a global phenomenon, and I think that if you think about where the impact was for SARS, it was focused on certain markets, and it still took us six, 12 months for a recovery. So I think that you know we have to be pragmatic and really think about you know, 2020, frankly, as being a year that we want to forget and move on from the perspective of hotel owners. And then 2021, hopefully, we'll start seeing some uh, improvement in the market. And it's really is, is going to be a function of the level of confidence. Are people going to be confident about traveling, staying in hotels? And you know, it's it's great that a lot of the large brands and owners have been talking about how to get people comfortable. You know, cleaning standards at your hotels to ensure that people are confident coming back. But I think, you know, we're going to see my senses that we'll start seeing the leisure market come back first, because, you know, with all gas prices, it makes sense to see the, you know, the folks travel domestically. And if you look at where gas prices are today, it's going to encourage people to travel, but you hope people will have disposable income to take vacations. I think where the business that's going to be the last to come back is probably the larger conventions you know, the comfort level of people will have to get together in larger groups is going to be something that we'll have to monitor.
0: If I can speculate for a second, you know, you listed off previous major downturns in the hotel business, but I guess one major change would be in the last few years, you mentioned the much larger presence of institutional capital on the investment side. Do you see that as a saving grace that you've got such deep pockets behind some of these hotels now to weather the storm?
2: Yeah, certainly. You know, the, the institutions and, you know, when you think about pension funds and and typically their capital structure, you know, doesn't include debt. It's some Oftentimes it's debt at a corporate level. So, you know, they obviously will have the capacity and wherewithal to withstand, a, you know, a recovery that will take, a, you know, several months. I think the challenge is going to be the smaller owners that are having to, frankly, you know, eat into their capital and their liquidity. And, you know, how that's going to, how they're going to fare is going to be a real key factor. But, you know, the great thing about this is that through this cycle, through what we're going through now, lenders have been super supportive. And it's not only the Schedule A banks, it's also the, the B-tier banks and, and credit unions and BDC and, you know, the various lenders that are participating in the space. You know, for the most part, a lot of them have provided three to six months deferrals on principal payments and, you know, working with, uh, with the borrower. So that's a great thing. But, you know, it really is a function of how long this thing goes.
0: So, Alan, other than, you know, institutional investment, which we've, you know, identified as being, you know, kind of a positive for this downturn, you know, what else do you see as, you know, good news for hotels over the next 24 months?
2: I think that in addition to the institutional capital, I think you've got some very sophisticated players that are major participants in this sector. And I think that they're well capitalized. And I think that, you know, a lot of them have gone through periods of downturns. And I think, you know, while these are unprecedented circumstances that we're going through, I think we're reminded of prior periods of market dislocation and uncertainty through which we have come out on the other side. And I think we've come out stronger and more agile. So, you know, I'm a firm believer that we'll get through this. It's just a function of a little more time.
0: All right, Alan, Alan, I love it. I love this topic. You know, this is new for Aaron and I. It's a little embarrassing that we've been in podcasting since 2016 and we're getting to hotels now, but I definitely learned a lot about the, the hotel business in the last hour with you. I want to thank you kindly for your time and coming to share with us today.
2: Well, uh, Thank you very much, Adam and Aaron. I really appreciate the invite and look forward to catching up with you guys soon. Yeah, that's great. Thanks we very much, much Alan. Thank,
0: uh, We want to thank First National for powering the podcast, and we want to thank the Real Estate Forums for setting up the introduction to Alan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.